Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Risha Desai. It's been a very busy couple of months for today's guest. As founding dean of the Elson S. Floyd School of Medicine at Washington State University in Spokane, Dr. John Tomkowiak presided over the school's first graduation and first match day and also welcomed the news of its first family medicine residency program being accredited. Dr. Tomkowiak has a long record of developing community-based education programs, and I'll be asking him about that approach and how he sizes up the current and future state of medical education. Thanks so much for being with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Well, let me just start out by asking you a little bit more about kind of what what got you started in medicine and specifically psychiatry? Well, Winston Churchill said, uh, we make a living by what we get. We make a life by what we give. And that's really been the case uh, for me. I've had some amazing mentors that have guided me across my career. And that's really how I got into medicine. I was working at the University of Illinois in a circadian rhythm lab under Evelyn Satinoff, a PhD researcher. And I remember she invited me into her office and said, John, I know you're thinking about medical school and also research, and I think you should go into medicine. And I was like, well, why? And she's like, well, we always need doctors that are good researchers, but once you become a researcher, it's really hard to become a doctor. And so with that uh, somewhat surprising advice, I applied to medical school and, and I got there. And once I was in medicine, I really was interested in surgery and uh, did all the necessary things to apply to a surgical residency. And I had one half credit left to complete my MD degree. And the only offering at my uh, school, which was Southern Illinois University, was what they call an extended elective. It was an elective that you had to do a half day every week for six months. And the only one they had was in the Department of Psychiatry, and it was a psychotherapy elective. I got engaged with a patient who has a a condition called retinitis pigmentosa, which is a degenerative eye disease. And in some cases you go blind. And that was exactly what was happening to my patient. It was a 31 year old mother of two. And for the next six months, I did psychotherapy sessions with her as she was uh, becoming blind. And her courageousness and her determination to do the best she could for her family and herself really inspired me to pursue psychiatry. I changed up everything and uh, I decided to do psychiatry. So a couple of really interesting points you just brought up, like one, that piece of advice, I just want to go back to it for a moment. What, what do you think that meant? You know, the idea that, you know, if you're doing research, it's, it's hard to go into medicine or become a doctor. What, what was the takeaway from you from that comment? Well, you know, I think she, she was really trying to encourage me that you can always do research if you've chosen to be a doctor, but once you choose the life of research and pursuing a PhD, I mean, it's not impossible to go back to school to become a doctor, but you're probably not going to be able to take care of patients. Um, and she really saw in me that, you know, that was something that inspired me. And so it was just so surprising because she was a PhD researcher. She spent her whole life and career was world renowned for her research. And, you know, I really expected her to say, follow in my footsteps. And so I thought it was pretty amazing that she really was thinking about me and my needs uh, in giving me that advice. And then the second sort of anecdote with with the woman that was losing her vision, you mentioned psychotherapy, and, and that's not the thing that jumped out in my mind. You know, in my mind, I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, she's losing her vision. That's got to be debilitating. You know, how is she going to 
keep a job? How is she going to take care of her family? So I'm just curious, how is it that you came around to recognizing that that was a core need of hers? And, and how did that psychotherapy kind of play out in broad terms? I obviously you don't want to get into the specifics of her case. Well, it, it really took the form of more cognitive therapy and, you know, helped her work through, you know, many of the issues that she was dealing with on an emotional level and translate them into action steps that she could take while she still had her eyesight and prepare and do things to eventually help her deal with the impact that her blindness would have on her and her family. And once she was able to turn the corner and accept that she actually could do a lot of things to prepare herself and make things better, it was like this amazing switch went on. And, um, you know, she just really became courageous and uh, pursued to do all these things that bettered herself and her family. Yeah. And I guess on some level, all of us are losing our physical capabilities, right? Like that's the normal way of life. And so obviously it's more acute in the setting you described and, and maybe more poignant for that reason, uh, but certainly a, an adaptation that we all must kind of reckon with at some point. So that makes sense. And it's something I talk to my students all the time about is, you know, once you get to that next best level of yourself, you better be working on the next best level. I think as physicians, we owe that to our future patients that we're always taking that next step to be better. I'm going to, I'm going to come back uh, around to asking what steps you're taking right now, John. I'll, I'll tell you a couple I'm taking right now are just uh, on the physical domain of swimming. And it's been really, really interesting and humbling to realize how, how challenging it can be to, to swim properly. So that's been my big next step. In terms of professional steps, then you've transitioned a few times. I mean, you, you know, just talked about research, going into clinical practice, and then you transitioned into an administrative role. And I'm just curious, kind of what drew you to that and, and what challenges were there for you as you're transitioning into that piece? Well, this really happened because of a, another great mentor that I had. I went to medical school and did my residency at Southern Illinois University the dean of that school was a psychiatrist by the name of Carl Ghetto, and I had the opportunity to have him supervise me as I was a resident uh, physician. And during that time, he really saw in me how much I loved to teach, and I had a lot of ideas about what I wanted to do and was getting frustrated that, you know, these things weren't happening. And he said, well, why don't you become a part of the solution? And uh, so slowly over time, he gave me some opportunities to be a leader. And uh, it ended up being on a task force to uh, redo the whole curriculum at Southern Illinois. And that led to my first real administrative position was a co-director of the entire second year of medical school. Once that happened, it was off to the races because I really enjoyed being able to have some of my ideas come to life, work with other people to really advance medical education. From there, I ended up going to Florida State to help them start a brand new medical school. Uh, that was around 2000. It was once again, Carl Ghetto, my mentor, who said, hey, if you're going to keep going on this sort of administrative track, you need some additional credentials. I said, you know, I've looked into MBAs and Masters of Public Health. They don't really inspire me. He, on his own, found me a program. It was a Master's of Organizational Leadership at Gonzaga that was a bricks and mortars program that had just turned into an online program. He says, I think I found the program for you. I did that program. It was life-changing. That really gave me the skills and tools I needed to advance further in leadership. That's really interesting. Talk, talk to me about that. Like, What did you learn in that program that 
was life changing? Did it kind of change your your mindset? Did you meet certain people? What what did you gain from it? Yes, to all of that. I mean, the first realization I had, which uh, I really felt humbled about, was that leadership is a science, just like medicine. And there are theories and facts and best practices in leadership that we know work and that if you understand them, then you can become a better leader. And I had never really thought about leadership as a science. So that was the first thing. The second thing is that the program I was in brought in uh, folks from all sorts of disciplines. Uh, I had policemen, K through 12 teachers, military folks, uh, folks that were in businesses. And I appreciated that as they were talking about the leadership challenges that they were dealing with, many of them uh, were the same ones that we were dealing with in healthcare. And in some cases, industries had solved some of those problems that we hadn't yet solved in healthcare. And so it was this great aha moment for me that, wow, there's a lot to learn about how we should be leading in medical education and healthcare from other disciplines and other industries. And uh, that was game changing for me. Do you feel like that's happening a bit more now? And, and if so, like, what would you say is the one industry we borrow the most from nowadays that that wasn't uh, happening maybe a decade or two ago? You know, I would say big tech has had such an influence on healthcare. And I think what we are seeing now, and I hope this is the trend, that big tech's willingness to take risks, uh, to tackle problems that maybe people think they shouldn't be in, should inspire those of us who are already in healthcare to really re-examine how we're approaching the advancement of what we're doing. You know, our own research, the way we're applying that research, either to patient care, education, and you know the outcomes that then we're getting, big tech has a really great way of uh, making that all work and doing it at scale. And I think we're just now realizing the importance of that strategy in really bettering healthcare for everyone. So I'm inspired uh, and I really love that big tech is trying to get into the healthcare space. I'm gonna now transition into specifically your experience in medical education. I'd love to kind of really understand from your perspective, what are the key lessons you've learned in medical education and how has that informed how you think about the Elson S. Floyd School of Medicine? You know, I would say Daryl Kirsch, who used to be the CEO of the AAMC, would say something frequently in conversations and in, in public forums. He would say, culture eats strategy for lunch. That is never more true, I think, in academic institutions, particularly medical ones, where uh, you can have really great ideas and plans for how you want to change things, but there's heavy baggage that has to be uh, lifted and gone through in order to make those change happen. And if you don't understand the culture of the organizations that you have and the influences acting on that culture, it's really hard to make change happen. And so I would say that's one of the first lessons that has really been paramount in um, me having some success in the organizations that I've worked with is really uh, number one, working on making a great culture. Two, there's a gentleman by the name of uh, Dr. Kevin Grigsby, who is a cultural anthropologist at the AAMC. And he introduced me to this idea about sequencing. 
And um, he doesn't like to talk about having priorities because the word priority often implies some weight or importance. And oftentimes in healthcare or in healthcare education, there are many values that have equal importance, but yet we have to choose you know, how we go about tackling them. Thus this idea of sequencing. And sequencing for me has become a real klaxon in terms of how we get the job done. Most of what we are doing is really important. And so we avoid these words like priorities and we talk about, well, how do we in sequence all the important things we need to do? And for me, those two things, focusing on the culture and making sure we get it right, and then make sure we do things in the right sequence, generally leads to great results. Now, a big part of culture is the people, of course, and make sure you grow people. And I'm just curious, how has that affected both uh, attracting folks and your hiring practices and retaining folks as well? Like, what are the things that you're doing that, that may be a little bit different from how normally it's done and folks might take some tips walking away from that and say, hey, maybe we should try that at our organization as well. Well, the first thing we did when we were a very small organization at our new medical school here was we decided that for our culture, we did want to have three priorities. Now, I just said we don't use the word priorities. The only time we use them is in this context. And we decided that the number one priority for everyone would always be personal health and that would be physical or mental. Uh, the second priority would be our family and friends. And the idea here is if you have family and friends that are hurting, you cannot focus 100% on your job. So take care of them first. And then third is the job. So if you take care of your personal health, both your physical and mental, then you take care of your family and friends, you will come to work and do amazing things. And so we built that into our culture from day one. Uh, that phrase is used at every orientation session. We repeat it in every public forum that I do. I talk about that. We make sure that that happens with our students, with our staff, everyone in the organization knows about these priorities. And then the second thing, we ask everybody to hold each other accountable. So this isn't just a leadership thing, that leadership is going to make sure we do all this. We make sure that every person in the organization not only focuses on themselves, but helps each other out in this regard. And, and that's been a really important thing that we've done. The second thing is when, when we recruited uh, people, when we first started the medical school and our first group of students, we gave them a Liz Wiseman's book, Multipliers. And uh, I think that's a, another really great example of how we need to empower those around us to do more and better. And uh, that was a, a real important, I think, concept. And we continue to do that going forward. So you're a huge proponent of community-based medical education. And I'm just curious how what you just described in terms of kind of the philosophy around the key priorities being the self, the family, and then after that, the job. How does that extend to community-based medical education and what is the overlap there in terms of the ways in which that plays out? I will admit up front, I'm biased towards community medical education. I've spent my entire career at five different community-based medical schools. I think it's so important that as we train the physicians of the future, they really understand the people and the communities that we're working in. It's not like it used to be where we were solely focused on the individual patient that's sitting in the office right now. We realize that there are so many other factors 
uh, environmental, uh, socioeconomic factors that affect the health outcomes of patients. And to really understand those, you need to understand the environment and the community that our patients live in. And so I think it's really important as we prepare the future physicians to understand what the needs of communities are and the patients within those communities so we can best serve them. And I think the pandemic is just a, a great example of how maybe we haven't done such a great job in that area. And there are lots of opportunities to do better going forward. Well, you know, that was my next question is that you, we're, we're still in this COVID pandemic. And obviously, a lot of the focus has been on how to do a better job in specific communities. You know, the pandemic has affected people unequally. What are your thoughts on that? What are some areas where you think that we can do better to prevent the next pandemic? Well, I think we really need to understand the importance of communication and trust with uh, our patients and the populations that we serve. Uh, I think that has played out time and time again in the pandemic where there has been conflicting information that has been given to people. And there came a point in time when I think uh, the population said, I'm not sure if we can trust different sources. And being this idea of a trusted site for healthcare, I think is so important. And all of us in healthcare should be considered a trusted site for healthcare information. But somehow I feel we've lost a little bit of that. And I think part of that is we've become disconnected from the communities that we serve. And so we need to understand, you know, what are the needs of these communities? You know, how are they thinking or what are their concerns about it? And really address those directly. That can be done at many different levels. It should be done at the, you know, one-to-one -one level, but also at the community, regional, and, you know, national level. So I think teaching our students how to communicate clearly and how to build trust with not only their individual patients, but within the communities that they serve is incredibly important. I would say that the second thing that we've learned is that the ability to be agile and to take new information, act on it quickly, uh, change what we do, and then look at it the next week and do that process all over again is incredibly important. And, um, you know, it's really taking continuous quality improvement and applying it sort of every day. And uh, we need to do that in the public health sector, just like we do it in the everyday practice of taking care of individual patients. Bringing that back to training, I'm just curious, do you feel like that's something that is happening in medical education today, that kind of feedback loop around quality improvement? Well, I, I certainly think that it's happening in certain places. I think the pandemic has shown a bright light on the importance of the processes. And it really leads to this other idea that we know is so important, which is continuous learning uh, over a lifetime for those of us in healthcare. And uh, this same idea about continuous quality improvement, I mean, we should always be making ourselves the next best version. And to do that, we have to be constantly in a feedback loop of, you know, what did we do last time? How can we make it better? I believe that we're in a good place now where um, medical institutions are saying, yes, this is a core feature of what we need to teach the future physician workforce. Are there other kind of lasting impacts of COVID on medical education in addition to kind of enforcing or reinforcing the need for that? Are there other things that you're seeing already? Yeah, I mean, I know for us, um, we were forced into doing things differently during the time of COVID and how we were educating our uh, students. 
And I think we've learned some really valuable lessons. Uh, one of those lessons is the need to be more flexible in what we do. There are many different learning styles for our students that are out there. And I think the pandemic helped us explore those in ways that we had not done before. And certainly the use of uh, virtual or teletechnology to engage them in their learning became way more prevalent. And, you know, we see that as an important part of education going forward. You know, even if the pandemic was totally resolved and we could all go back to doing things the way we did, we wouldn't want to because we've discovered there are some better ways to do that going forward. One of those is the engagement of learners at a distance for example, being able to monitor them in a tele-environment while they're engaged in patient encounters and uh, giving them feedback when a faculty member, you know, might be in a city 200 miles away and they can be somewhere else. And, you know, we can do that and it worked just as well. And sometimes it's better because we can see more patients uh, that way. And so I'm really hopeful that uh, we don't leave in the dust many of the lessons that we've taken away from this very difficult time. Speaking of lessons, you know, we have so many students and early career health professionals in our audience. I'm curious to get your advice to them about meeting the challenges of this moment and approaching their career in healthcare more broadly. Well, I think healthcare is like a marathon. When you start the race, uh, you definitely have a lot of energy. You're, you're raring to go but you need to understand it's a long game. And uh, even after you become a physician, if you're gonna stay in the game for a long time, you have to take care of yourself. And so I would say those priorities that I talked about earlier that have helped our organization be so successful about taking care of your physical and mental health, taking care of your loved ones, and then focusing on the job, I think that's really the key for those learners who want to be in healthcare. They need to develop those habits uh, right from the get-go because it is a long game. It's a long run. And we need our clinicians to be healthy for a long time and to be fully invested in the job because there's a lot of work for us to do. And I know that we're up for it. Well, it's a very inspiring and uplifting message. I appreciate you sharing that uh, with us and for being with us uh, on the program today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm Rishi Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>